If you have your Bibles today, you can turn them to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2. Our sermon text for this morning is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear then, church, the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of, Ju- king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you this morning for the season of Christmas, a time when we remember and meditate on and celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us this morning, perhaps they're homesick. We pray for them to be healed, for them to get better. Lord, that they would not lose hope, that you are a good God, and that you give good gifts. Father, we pray as well for this community. We pray for the city of Waukesha, Lord, in this time of Christmas, for those who find themselves in a place where Christmas is not a joyful time, but is a time of sorrow for one reason or another, perhaps something that has happened in their family, tragedy. We pray for them, Lord, that this Christmas they would find the hope of Jesus Christ, They would find new life in him and that Christmas would be turned from a time of sorrow to a time of great joy coming to their Savior, Jesus Christ. We look now to you, Lord, as we turn to your word. We ask that you would cause us to hear it and go away from here rejoicing just as the wise men rejoiced when they found the Christ child, rejoicing in all that you are and all that you have done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' good name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're coming again to this same passage that we looked at last week. And the reason why I've chosen to look at this passage again is because this morning I want us to consider the meaning and the significance of the Magi or the wise men in the Christmas story. So we looked at Herod last week and I noted last week the stark contrast between Herod And the wise men, a contrast I believe that Matthew intends for all of his readers to pick up on. Because on the one hand, you have Herod, 
This man who sits on the throne of Judea as king over the Jews and who responds to the news of Christ's birth with violent opposition, with an intent to kill him, to get rid of him. And then on the other hand, you have the Magi, the wise men, who've come from a far country in search of the Jewish Messiah, that they might worship him, that they might bow down before him and present to him gifts that were fit for a king. So we said last week, Herod serves as a warning to us of the impulse to maintain autonomy, that is to maintain our self-rule, our rule over our own lives and our own little kingdoms. And then likewise, we could say of the wise men, they serve as an example of eagerly seeking Christ to honor him, to bow before him, to worship him. So this morning, we're going to consider the Magi and their significance in the story of the birth of our Lord. They are, as I mentioned, a peculiar and a mysterious part of the story, actually. Other than knowing that they came from the East, we don't know very much about their background. We don't even know how they heard of of the Christ, of of the Messiah, that he would one day be born. Uh, We can ascertain that they were likely men of high honor in their country. They were very likely, they served in a royal court. Um, They were magi. And they identified the birth of Christ by the appearance of a star. So very likely they were astrologers. And they were the kind that they they studied the skies because in the skies they would find certain stars and different things that were happening in the skies. And they would use that to interpret future events like the rising of a powerful king or nation. And so that's about all that we know of them. But I want to ask this morning... um, what, what does it matter that they're, they're here? What is the significance of their place in the Christmas story? So this is our path, unlikely seekers of the Messiah first, then bending knee before him, and finally the worship of the nations. Now a good place to start when we think about the Magi and when we read this story would be to ask the question, what are they doing here? What are the wise men doing in the story of Christ's birth? Or we might say, How do astrologers from a pagan nation fit in to the narrative of Christ's birth, to the story of the birth of the Messiah? Now, most of you probably heard this story growing up. Many of you, this is a really familiar story. You remember hearing it as a child, the wise men coming from the east. You sang the song, We Three Kings. What did they come for? They came to search for the newborn king to honor him with gifts. They come to Jerusalem. They end up being called in by Herod to his court. They find direction from the scribes and the chief priests of where the Messiah would be born. And they go to Bethlehem and the star leads them to the house where Jesus lay. And they worship him and they give him gifts. Now there's a blessing in learning these Bible stories from a young age, but there's also a hitch that comes with it. And here's the hitch, that the story becomes so familiar to us that all the parts actually seem to fit, right? So when I say, how do they fit into this story? How do astrologers from a pagan nation fit into the story of Christ's birth? You say, well, of course they fit. Why? Because the Magi have always been there. You know, you had it, uh, your mom had it on the shelf, the nativity scene. And and you, you had three wise men because there were three gifts. And so we assumed there were three wise men and they were holding their gifts. So do the Magi fit into the Christmas story? Of course they do. They've just always been there. But when you stop to think about it, Magi from the East 
are characters one should not expect to belong in the story of the birth of a Jewish Messiah. They're indeed unlikely characters to play the part that they actually play. After all, we are reading the story of God's work among God's people, which in the Old Testament was almost exclusively the nation of Israel. And by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament period, Israel's dwindled down to just Judea. So what was left of Israel consisted mostly of Jews who had returned to Judea from Babylon. And as the last of the prophets died out, the people of God are left waiting. They're looking and longing for the promises of the Messiah to be fulfilled. For God to send his mighty servant king who would deliver his people from their greatest enemies and who would bring about this great restoration of the nation. And so the New Testament begins with news, with good news, that the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel, has finally come. And as Matthew records the account of his birth, we're taken to the scene in Jerusalem where King Herod gets wind of strangers from the east asking around town about a baby who was born king of the Jews. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it, that when Herod gathers his chief priests and scribes, he asks them directly about the prophecies concerning the Messiah. So in other words, he knew when these, these foreign wise men were asking about the newborn, the, the newborn king of the Jews, he knew that they were asking about the Messiah. There was no question in his mind. Who are they looking for? He knew. But in any case, we're taken right to Herod's court in Jerusalem, right to the heart of Israel, right to the heart of the Jewish nation, right to the heart where all of, there's so much spiritual significance there. It's the city where David sat on his throne, the great King David sat on his throne. And you have the scribes and you have the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel, they're experts in the scriptures. They know all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, right? And you have a king who is the king of the Jews, Herod, who claims to be a faithful Jew. And he has showed his religious devotion to the God of Israel by doing what? Remember last week, by building the massive temple in Jerusalem, or we could call it rebuilding, but really essentially it was building, mostly just building this massive temple in Jerusalem. What for? For the worship of Yahweh, for God's people to worship their God. And so of all the people and all the places in which you would expect there to be fervor and exuberant joy over the possibility that the long-awaited Messiah had finally come, this was it. This is the place. These are the people. But it wasn't. And they weren't. Instead, who are the ones seeking the Messiah? Where do they come from? What is their heritage? What is their claim to the promises of God to his people? And so we're introduced to these men who are both mysterious and unlikely candidates for the role that they play. Who would have imagined that on that day in Jerusalem, the ones seeking the Messiah would be not the scribes, not the priests, not the ones dedicated to studying the scriptures or offering sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people, not the one who led the great building campaign for the holy temple, but foreigners, pagan astrologers and diviners, strangers to the covenant people of God, men from a distant country, outsiders to the covenant, heathens, 
So you see, the Magi, they don't fit into the normal categories at all. They're kind of like Job and Melchizedek from the Old Testament. How they have come to know the one true God is just a mystery. They don't fit into the normal paradigm of belonging to a covenant people. Being in possession of God's holy revelation, which lays out God's promises and God's commands for his people. Yet here they are in the story. And they're shown to be true worshipers of the true God by the parts they play in the story. Now, this is something that ought to actually bring us great comfort this Christmas. Because the part the wise men play in this story illustrate for us how God writes his story in ways that we would never guess. He is at work in the world in places we may never expect to find true servants of the Lord. Now, the great irony of the story of Herod and the Magi is that the characters one would expect to enthusiastically embrace the Messiah don't seem to care at all, while the ones um, no one in that time would have expected to care about the Messiah travel hundreds of miles to find him that they might bow the knee and worship him. So this Christmas, as we look out into the world and we wonder what God is up to in this world, what is he up to? We're to remember the Magi He's up to more than we might expect or think. He often writes irony into the story he is crafting for this world, and he delights in writing unlikely characters into that story. And sometimes he does so in wonderful and mysterious ways. You just think about those stories that many of you have probably heard of Muslims in Islamic countries who have dreams about Jesus Christ which prompt them to search the truth, to search the scriptures, to seek out Christ, to find a Christian who can share the gospel, the good news to them of Jesus Christ, him as the son of God and the savior of the world. Have you heard stories like that? Well, if you haven't, then you can go ask Mike Creech and he'll tell you one. It's actually a really good one. One that he heard from firsthand from a man who had that experience. And it's incredible. And those stories remind us of this truth that God is at work in this world in wonderful and mysterious ways, in places and actually in people that we might not expect. Now certainly God has ordained means of accomplishing his will in this world, but he is not bound by those ordinary means. He is masterfully sovereign in all places and at all times. He raises up worshipers from the most unlikely places. His truth shines in the darkness. And that is a wonderfully comforting thought this Christmas. Now, as we consider the role that the wise men play in the Christmas story, we shouldn't fail to miss the contrast between them and the chief priests and scribes. As I mentioned before, the irony of this story is that while the wise men were unlikely characters to be seeking the Jewish Messiah, the likely characters, the priests and the high priests and the scribes, seem to care very little about his birth. Did you notice that? These Jewish religious leaders, they were experts in the scriptures. When Herod asked them where the Messiah was to be born, they were able to give an answer immediately. They didn't say, well, let us go and consult the Old Testament and we'll get back to you in a few days. No, they had, immediate, they had the answer immediately. Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. 
Now, how could they do that? Because they were trained. They were theologians. They were bibliophiles. They were scholars. They were the spiritual leaders. They were the teachers of the law. And yet, this is the last that we hear of them in the Christmas story. It seems that not one of them thought it worth the short journey to Bethlehem to investigate whether the promises had actually been fulfilled concerning the Messiah. It seems that no one was willing to accompany the wise men so that they too might fall down and worship the newborn king. And that's incredible when you think about it. The coming of the Messiah was the hope that every faithful Jew hung their hat on. This was the thing. The birth of the Messiah was the thing. The Old Testament story built up to the coming of the Davidic king. Everything was working towards that. And when he arrives, what is the response? Lowly shepherds come from the fields. Pagan mag magi travel from afar. But Jewish high priests and scribes stay in Jerusalem. And here we're reminded of a sobering reality. And that is that biblical knowledge is not always accompanied with hearts inclined to worship the king. That day it was the pagan astrologers with little knowledge of God's word who were eager to seek Christ and bow before him. And the experts, the theologians, the teachers of the law, the ones who could answer all of the what does the Bible say questions simply stayed in Jerusalem while the word made flesh was in Bethlehem for any and all to come and worship him. 19th century Anglican preacher J.C. Ryle says, these verses show us that there may be knowledge of Scripture in the head while there is no grace in the heart. Let us be aware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. The sad reality was that the scribes and priests had many privileges when it came to knowing and serving the Lord. Privilege, privileges like having God's word, knowing God's promises and his commands. But privileges did not guarantee faith or obedience or worship. And we can take a lesson from them that we not be content with a mere possession of the privileges that God has given to us, but that we utilize those privileges for their intended purposes, that we might pursue Christ with hearts of faith, hands that obey, knees that bow, mouths that proclaim his praise. The wise men had few privileges when it came to spiritual matters, yet they sought Christ with what they had. By the testimony of Scripture, they were told that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and that was sufficient for them to go and look for him there that they might worship him. And how much more have we been given than they? How much more even than the priests and the scribes have been given? His word, we've been given his covenant. We've been sealed by his spirit. We've been made participants in his body, the church. We've been given his sacraments, sacred signs of our union with Christ. All of these privileges given to us, not that we would be content with a head knowledge or a superficial sort of religiosity, 
but that we might all the more seek to know our Lord, to serve him, to honor him with our lives, to praise him with our mouths. So as you meditate on the significance of the birth of our Lord this Christmas season, remember the example of the Magi in contrast to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Whatever knowledge they had, even though it was very little, they put it to use and sought Christ in faith that they might bow down before him in worship. And that brings us to bending knee before him. Verse 10, look at it with me. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Bowing the knee before the Lord in humble state, in his humble state, these magi proved to be men of faith. Now, some might think their faith was primarily demonstrated when they sought Christ by the appearance of a star or when they believed the prophecy spoken of the Messiah that he was born in Bethlehem? So how did their bending knee require faith when they were able to see him right there before them? You say, Chuck, how is that faith? Well, the answer is in what they saw. What did they see? What did they find when they finally reached the newborn king? Well, they found a house, not a palace. And in that house, they found an infinite infant who was helpless, who was weak, who was completely dependent on his mother. Now, the one they heard of was, a great, was to be a great king. But for all natural appearances, he looked to be nothing more than a common child, right? No pomp, no royal garments, no recognition amongst his own, no hint of royalty or power or any such thing that might accompany a king that was worthy of the honor of all the nations. I wonder what they thought when they went through Jerusalem and they were asking around and no one seemed to know about the birth of their own Messiah. Or what they thought when the priests and the scribes knew the prophecies of the newborn king, but they didn't seem to care at all to seek him out. I wonder what they thought when they got to the house, and it looked like any ordinary residence in an ordinary small town called Bethlehem. Or what they thought when they were the only ones who had come to see this baby that looked and sounded and smelled like any other baby. See, this is why I say they show themselves to be men of faith. They indeed exemplify for us faith-driven worship when they fall down and worship the Christ child, offering to him gifts that were fit for a king. You see, they looked upon Christ as a babe, and they did so with the eyes of faith, believing that there was more there than what was actually meeting their eyes. Heavenly majesty was concealed in the face of a child. Glory as the, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth in the form of what? A baby. And perhaps they said to themselves, why lies he in such mean estate? Yet their conviction that this baby was worthy of their worship 
had been sealed not by what they saw with their eyes, but by the message that they had received concerning him. They looked upon him in faith that the sign God had given to them had not misled them, and they bowed down and they worshiped their king. And this is how we must worship our Savior today, isn't it? We look upon him with the eyes of faith as he is presented to us in the scriptures. We read the gospels and we learn of him and we hear from him, all the while not seeing his glory with our eyes, but beholding his glory as it is revealed to us here. So our worship of him is driven by faith that the message that we have received about him is indeed true. While we have yet to see this king in all his splendor and glory, just as they were yet to see him in that way, we're not ashamed to bow before him, to render him the praise that is due to him as the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. And so this Christmas, let us learn from the faith of these unlikely seekers of the Messiah. They believed what all that was revealed to them concerning Christ and they bowed before him and they worshiped him not because of what their eyes saw but in faith that what their eyes were seeing was indeed the Christ so this advent let us do the same we worship Christ in faith that the message that we have received is indeed true that Jesus who was born in Bethlehem who grew to be a man in the wisdom and honor of God and died on the cross and rose again, is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this brings us to the worship of nations. Now, though the wise men have relatively a short appearance in the gospel story, the part they play is actually very profound, and we might say it's prophetic. And the reason why I say prophetic is because when the reader comes to the birth of Christ and reads of pagan astrologers traveling from a far country to worship Christ, that is meant to clue us in on something of the destiny of this king. It's a sign, you see, of what is to come. And the reader ought to ask, when he reads this story, ought to ask if as a newborn he receives, Jesus receives the worship of those outside the nation of Israel, then what does this mean will happen when he is exalted as king? What will be, what will be the scope of this king's kingdom? When he sits on his throne, how far will his rule and reign actually extend? Now as you read Matthew's gospel you find the answer. Matthew is giving us a hint at the beginning because he continues on with this theme as you read through his gospel. John the Baptist, for example, in chapter three, warns the Pharisees, and what does he say to them? He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is John the Baptist saying? Don't take pride in the fact that you're Jewish and just assume that you're in God's good graces because of your heritage. For God indeed can raise up children from outside the nation of Israel. He could raise up these stones as children of Abraham. Responding to the faith of the Roman centurion, Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and west 
and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, in his kingdom. Jesus says, there will be many who come from east and west. And then in wonderful climax to this theme that Matthew began all the way in the beginning with the worship of the Magi. He ends his gospel. His gospel ends with Christ's commission to his disciples. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So you see the Magi, them coming to worship Christ foreshadowed. It was a sign. It was a glimpse of what was to come. The child they worship would one day be risen as Savior and Lord of all of the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go disciple all the nations. The scope of his kingdom and his salvation would not be restricted to Israel alone, but would be a universal kingdom. It would be a universal kingdom with universal praise to the one king of all kings. So at the very beginning here at the birth of the Messiah, we're given a hint of what is to come. It's the prelude, listen. It's the prelude of the song that is sung in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Magi come and they worship Christ because Christ has come not just for a nation, but for all the nations. They come and they worship Christ because his kingdom will not have earthly borders, but will stretch from the east to the west, from the north to the south. They come to him because God is orchestrating a story. Listen, because God is orchestrating a story that ends with Christ as king of all kings who will one day receive all praise and all the glory from all the people. And God is pleased to drop hints to that all along the way for us. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So praise the Lord for the inclusion of the foreign magi in the story of Christ's birth. Do they belong here? Absolutely. Their inclusion in the story is a reminder of ours and their worship beckons all peoples of the earth, of all the nations to come and worship and bow down before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Endow the King with your justice, O God. The Royal Son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. 
May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon throughout all generations. And may he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. And may he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. So long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May peoples ever pray for him and bless him all the day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. And may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him. And they will all call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.